This Boss Barista episode is brought to you by Ernex. If you've worked in the coffee industry, you probably know Ernex well. You've used their products to clean your equipment. You've attended an event that they've supported. You're probably even using Kefiza at home to clean your pots and pans. One of Ernex's latest advances is a range of environmentally friendly cleaners called BioCaf. BioCaf products are made entirely from plant and mineral-based ingredients and are fully biodegradable. They're available for both commercial and household coffee equipment, so you can use them at the cafe just as easily as you can use them at home. But Ernex is doing more than just making eco-friendly cleaners. They've partnered with people like me and several other coffee professionals to highlight some of the best sustainability efforts in the industry with the BioCaf Sustainability Series. I'm super excited to be part of this initiative and to have another platform to share my thoughts on topics like sustainability. Visit the Ernex website to read my recent piece on Onyx Coffee Labs switch to oat milk in their latest cafe and learn more about BioCaf by visiting www.ernex.com. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. I met Brian Gaffney at a coffee shop that I worked at in Brooklyn called Daily Press. There was truly nothing outwardly special about this shop. It was on a busy street in the southeast corner of the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood and mostly attracted folks who lived close by. You wouldn't go out of your way to stop by this place. The fact that this was a neighborhood spot truly made Daily Press what it was. Almost every customer was a regular, someone that at least one of the baristas had built a relationship with. I remember Brian distinctly. He was friendly with everyone. He worked out of the shop pretty often and was always curious about the types of coffees that we were pouring. Although Brian doesn't work in the coffee industry as we traditionally think of it, he even describes his relationship to the industry as being coffee adjacent. He's continued to pursue his interest in the beverage, writing about coffee for publications like Standart and serving on the board for the Coffee Coalition for Racial Equity. In this conversation, we revisit our nine-year-long friendship and discuss how to find ways to connect with customers. I continue to come back to this phrase that I think James Hoffman said once, you'll hear it in this episode, I say it a couple of times, that coffee is bad at telling its own story. Brian's background is in marketing and brand strategy, so we talk about what it means for coffee people to take ownership of their own narrative. But we're not just talking about coffee shop owners when we say coffee people. When it comes to narrative setting, oftentimes black and brown people are left out of the equation even though their labor, both historically and to this day, continues to be the backbone of our entire industry. And yet the stories and the ways that we talk about coffee center affluent white consumers. We discuss what a future led by black and brown people looks like and how centering the perspectives of the laborers in coffee has the potential to completely rewrite what the industry can look like, as opposed to the descent into sameness that we seem to be experiencing now. Here's Brian. Brian, I'm really excited to have you on since we have known each other for almost a decade, which is wild. 
I know I'm so used to seeing you hanging out on Franklin Avenue, right, right near um, uh, Atlantic Avenue. And that was the spot where we met and where we used to hang out. So even though we're now states and time zones apart, it's great to see you. I know. It's so great to see you. And it's so great to see you continuing to be part of the coffee industry and to be so active. So I want to backtrack a little bit. I'd like to start at the very beginning with folks. And I was wondering if you could tell me about some of your first memories of coffee. Absolutely. Very first memory of coffee is sitting in my uh, my paternal grandmother's kitchen. Uh, Edna Gaffney was her name. And I'm certain that it was a brand of instant coffee. I'm certain that it came with sweetened condensed milk. Uh, and I'm certain that it was served in those pink melamine cups. Uh, and I remember that it, it was, it, which I didn't realize then, it was, of course, more milk than it was coffee. But that's my very first experience with coffee and the one that is that is greatly imprinted. Um, after that, I, I remember being a professional in New York after moving here from Atlanta and, and doing some of the Starbucks runs as one does in between meetings at work. Uh, but the real genesis in the beginning of my, my love affair with specialty coffee started uh, in my neighborhood in Clinton Hill in Brooklyn. There's a little uh, French bistro place called Choice Market. Uh, and the, the barista there was Raphael, and, and I, I would always go in and get coffee, and I'd, I'd add cream and sugar before I tasted the coffee, right? So I'd add it, and then I would taste it after I added everything. And one day, Raphael said to me, he said, Brian, you always come in and add milk and sugar bef uh, before you taste the coffee. I said, do you do that with your food? Do you add salt and pepper before you taste it? I said, no, Raphael. He said, okay, so don't do that with the coffee. Just taste it. And then if you don't like it, add the milk and sugar. Uh, and I took him up on it. And that was really the beginning of uh, my experience in specialty. It's funny hearing that story condensed into like one antidote versus what I would imagine was, you know, weeks, months of coming in every day and building trust and building a relationship. Because I think that it can sound a little jarring to be like, oh, that guy called you right out. He was like, you don't put, you don't, you don't season your food before you try it. Why would you do that with your coffee? But when you think about how the relationship between you and Raphael built, it's kind of the classic story of how we build trust with customers, which is really cool. And it was like that moment of trust that really brought you in. You're absolutely right. There were months of me stopping in, grabbing coffee, uh, him sending a Madeline uh, or Madeline's home for me to bring to the kids uh, in the evening where we did build the trust. We got to, hello, how are you? We got past, you know, just on a, on a name basis, him knowing my beverage before he did approach with that question. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It became the relationship. And because of the trust that we built in the relationship, that's what kind of really gave him and granted him the permission to ask that question of me and for me to hear it without taking offense. Do you remember that first sip of coffee without cream or sugar? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. It was, it, it was bittersweet. Uh, and as a matter of fact, not only that, but I remember it was the, they were serving Intelligentsia at the time, and it was Intelligentsia's El Diablo Dark Roast. And I just sipped it. And the first thing is, I remember it was also hot. And that's when he also warned me, said, what? Let it cool first. Because the other thing that, which makes perfect sense, he reminded me is that part of adding the milk and the sugar also cools the temperature of the coffee. When you don't add anything, you need to wait a little bit longer. Uh, but I, so I, I hung on for a little bit because I wanted to taste it while I was there with him. 
Uh, and, and I did taste it and it was, it was bitter sweet, but it was bitter in a rich way. I'm also a huge dark chocolate lover. So, you know, 70 plus percent cacao. Uh, and, and so it, 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 it smarted a little bit. It, it had presence, um, and it was naturally sweet. And that was, I remember the first time. And he asked me about that, this natural sweetness in coffee to the point now, and now we're, we're 14, 15 years from that first experience, um, I do note the natural sweetness in coffee. And so if you add something to it, it's not even that it tastes bad. It just doesn't taste like the natural sweetness of coffee. Oh, that's so interesting. I love that observation. How do we know each other? We know each other from Brooklyn. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. My, my roommate from college was, was from Brooklyn, and he referred to Brooklyn as a planet. Uh, but it was. We, we met at a point in my life where I was finishing up grad school. I was studying for a graduate degree in branding from the School of Visual Arts. And Daily Press was a coffee shop, interestingly enough, that also served intelligentsia at that time. Because uh, even then, I was, I, I was looking for the, you know, which roasters because I was developing a relationship you know, with the roasters. And that's what led me to, to Daily Press. Um, and you were there. So I was coming in. I was writing papers for school, uh, ultimately getting to the point of working on my thesis project. And Daily Press became my third place. It was, yes, I came for great coffee, but I came for great company. And I came to hang out. And that's where you and I you know, got to know each other up to and including the first cupping that you held there that was also um, my first cupping and my wife's first cupping. And that was really cool. I totally forgot that you were at that. And I totally forgot that I even had that cupping. But I remember being so excited to host an event like that. And I think maybe you and your wife were the only two customers that were there because we held it at a weird time. It was nighttime. I think it was right as the store was closing, but it was all the baristas. And I think one of my roasting friends, uh, this guy, Todd, and then you and your wife. But even so, it just felt like such an intimate and small gathering of people. And it was really lovely. And that's such a perfect word. It was lovely and it was small and it was intimate and it felt safe. Uh, so I could explore. I didn't have to be intimidated, you know, because again, you, you think about cupping and you think about a lot of the stated, the protocols, the way you're supposed to slurp, right? The kinds of observations, the kinds of, of nomenclature that you're supposed to use to describe tasting notes. But there wasn't any of that pretense there. And it felt like just a really cool place to, uh, and time to taste a bunch of different coffees and see what they were, see what you liked, see what you didn't and, and why and talk about it. Uh, and so I think because of you know, the way that you hosted that first one, uh, again, part of building that relationship, because I think even then I'd been coming for a few months before you hosted that first one. Um, so it, it felt like a good place to come and a good experience to have. And it was, we had a ball and I've been cupping coffee pretty consistently since then. It's, it's incredible to see you continuing this, this journey into coffee, because I think very rarely we get to see the reward of of building trust with customers. And part of that is because we're not great at telling coffee story, which is something I definitely want to talk about, especially with your experience in branding and marketing. Um, but I want to talk about Daily Press a little bit more because I was wondering what made that, besides maybe the relationship that you were building with customer or with baristas, excuse me, what made that your place? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, what made it my place is the proximity to home. I could walk to Daily Press, you know, so it was it was easy to get there. 
uh, it was the fact that I knew the coffee, right? From from because at that point, Choice was no longer uh, brewing Intelligentsia coffee; they'd moved to a different brand. Uh, you all were brewing it, so I knew the coffee, got to know the place. Then I got to know the space. I remember, you know, being there relatively recently after it opened. You know, meeting the owners, hearing what they wanted to do, the beverages, and then I remember the chocolate chip cookies. I think these chocolate chip cookies, the dough was being flown in, I think, from Philly. And they were the most amazing chocolate chip cookies. And if you got them right out of the oven, they were just warm. They'd melt, they'd melt in your hand on your way to your mouth. And that with a really beautifully brewed cup of coffee it was perfect. And so I could stay in my neighborhood, have a fantastic experience, feel safe. It'd be really, really easy, comfortable, and relaxed. Um, and then just make my way back home. It's funny, those cookies, as you mentioned them, I'm both delighted because they were that delicious, but also having flashbacks of having to order these massive amounts of cookies and find spaces <laughs> for them to be frozen because you're right, we had to fly them in from Philadelphia or someone had to go to Philadelphia to get them and we'd have to come back with like just hundreds of dozens of frozen cookies um and eventually we just like we we stopped the charade we're like we can't do this anymore um but have you ever had the chocolate chip cookies at culture espresso no, no. oh okay you have to I'm go putting to that on my list 38th and 6th i used to work there in 2014 and we would bake we baked we baked cookies there too fresh and as we were like taking them out people would just start lining up for cookies uh, it was it was a while we, we were basically just like a cookie place that sometimes served coffee um it i love before we 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 got on the air you were talking about how daily press was kind of your place but that you haven't really made like another place since then which i think is really interesting how how much of like the the things we find comfortable and the things that we build attachments to are almost sometimes just lost to time. Like we, it just never happens again. It's not natural. Let's say that like I just build another home or another space. And I was wondering like why that is like, why, why maybe have you haven't found another place or what about other coffee shops that you've gone to that just hasn't been like, this isn't, this isn't my place or like, this isn't the place that I want to stay for four hours and talk to customers and talk to baristas, <laughs> you know? Sure. Sure. Um, I think a couple of things happened. One of them is that I started working in the city. Uh, in that time when I was finishing grad school, I was actually working in Brooklyn. Um, in uh, July of 2012, um, I actually started working in the city. And so part of the, my, my entire life orientation shifted from going you know, from Brooklyn into Manhattan as opposed to kind of being in Brooklyn. And, and then so as a result, my ability to, you know, hit the coffee shop during the week went away. But at the same time, quite frankly, and again, I, I think I was there for a while. And then, you know, you ended up changing and going from one coast to the next. And I really am a relationship-based person. Uh, I'm also, and I don't necessarily have, uh, you know, tons of relationships. I do, I, I think that I do small numbers of relationships really, really well. And so um, it's kind of, so, you know, Ashley, Ashley left, kind of life has shifted. And at that point, I was learning so much uh, that, and part of what happened is my, my coffee relationship ended up following my spirits relationship a little bit. In that, when I when I found something that I liked in the spirits industry, instead of necessarily going to a bar, I would just you know buy it and have it at home. So that way, I'm right. The economics on it are far better, um, and then I can also explore. So the same way I can I kind of explore coffee, 
I can do it with spirits. Since quarantine, I've been doing that quite a bit with mezcal. Right? Mezcal is kind of the spirit that I've been exploring a lot. So I ended up, you know, getting kicked off of the kitchen counter at home from buying equipment. Right. So I went from my my you know Cuisinart 12 cup coffee maker with a grinder to buying my first Capresso grinder, uh, you know, buying my French press, buying my Chemex, buying the the pour over. And I remember I I you know was part of the um fellow's first Kickstarter for for the stag kettle. Um and so I started kind of watching, having watched what, what you did, um, you know watched what Raphael did and being able to take some of those practices and try them at home. And then I also learned I'm very much a drip coffee person as opposed to an espresso-based person. So, you know, I'm able to try these different methods, try different coffees. And for me, that's the experimentation is trying different coffees from different roasters, from different different varietals, from different countries of origin, and really kind of explore and play. And the ability to do that at home based on the knowledge I'd learned so, you know, and my office is in Midtown Manhattan. So when I'm when I'm in the city, I would go to, you know, the Blue Bottle by Bryant Park. I go by to Black Fox that opened on 45th, and I would go by Taylor Street. So these became the places where I would stop by and maybe say a quick hello um, and have a cup of coffee, but I wouldn't sit and linger the way that I used to when I, you know, when I come to Daily Press. I think it's pretty rare for a customer to be as engaged as you are. And I was wondering what about coffee drew you in? What felt, what, how did you decide that this was the thing that you wanted to explore more of? Because as I mentioned, it's really hard to get customers to care as much as, (laughs) as you do. And like seeing that you're still here and you're even more engaged is so rewarding and empowering. And I was wondering what, what kept you, what kept you interested? So, you know, I'll be honest, I've had the benefit of baristas who didn't make me feel like they were the smartest person in the room. And I, and I, and I was the dumb person for not knowing as much as they did. Uh, I've had the gift of, um, as baristas learned, there was a sharing with you in the cupping. You were sharing what you knew, what you learned, as opposed to, hey, this is what I know and this is what you don't. So when, when I'm greeted with excitement and enthusiasm, and the opportunity to explore, I, 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 that can, for me, can become contagious. And it also wasn't about, you know, as you would prepare a beverage or talk about the coffee, it, it, the conversation didn't stop with you. Um, same thing with Raphael. It wasn't about what he necessarily did with the beverage, but he was facilitating this experience that I was having with the coffee. So it enabled me to be more curious, to learn more to learn about the origins, where they're coming from, to learn about the different kinds of roasts that exist. Um, Ryan Su from uh, Blue Bottle at, at Bryant Park, uh, sorry, not Bryant Park, this was uh, earlier than that, at um, Rockefeller Center, uh, when, you know, it would be so cool. I'd, I'd go in in the mornings to, to grab a, that morning cup of coffee, because I typically have a morning cup and an afternoon cup. And Ryan would, would be good. He'd share it with me, you know, hey, Brian, this is coming in. We're doing some sample roasting on this one. This is something I want you to check out. So he would kind of let me know this is something new and different that you might be interested in. So because it was one relationship based, right? It's about people. It's not about the beverage or, or the cup. Um, it's about curiosity and the sharing of information and learning together. 
um, for me, that just became part of the motivation. And I wanted to continue that learning and that exploration journey on my own. And now because of the benefit of, of social media, you know, et cetera, it's really easy to, you know, go down as many rabbit holes as you'd like uh, to, to learn what's available from whom uh, and what you might like to try. I mean, it's not just experimentation, though, that you've engaged with. You've written about coffee. You're on the board for the Coffee Coalition for Racial Equity. You are perhaps even more engaged than some baristas. And <laughs> I was wondering how how did you sort of see see your role in coffee as you continue to learn and you continue to engage and you started kind of accessing these new networks? Sure. Uh, so there's an analogy that I sometimes use where I feel like coffee producers are like artists, singers, right, songwriters, and baristas are like DJs. And the best DJs turn you on to, to people that you like. Um, as I started exploring more and more about coffee, and if you think about, you know, kind of wine, as you think about the, the farm to table movement and food, I just didn't see enough about the producers themselves. And then when you, on top of that, when you start to think about uh, the fact that you know, in, in a good, the majority of coffee producing countries, we're talking about black and brown people. And they just seem to be invisible, right? When, when it comes to, you step into the coffee shop and you don't necessarily, you don't, you don't see that, okay, this is either coming from, it's coming from Latin America, it's coming from certain parts of Asia, it's coming from Africa. You don't see that. And so I really became curious then about the history of coffee, uh, and which you know immediately takes you into kind of the the structures of colonialism, uh, slavery, and the use of enslaved labor to produce coffee, particularly when you start talking about you know Brazil, et cetera, you know, um, and realizing that there was not simply a culinary connection, but there's an historical and a cultural connection that I could have to coffee. But then, you know, I, I talk about, and I can't remember what year it was published, um, but there was the book, you know, Things White People Like. And then there, there's, and I think the number one thing in that book, it talked about an overpriced cup of coffee. And I realized that how is it that there's this product that's gone from Ethiopia to Yemen to the rest of the world that has been produced by hands of color, and yet many people of color don't even connect or associate with it. And I think so that was another motivator for me to the point where now even as much as I, there are certain roasters that I, that I really do like a lot and I buy from consistently, I also look a lot at producers. I actually buy producers and kind of producers guide me to different roasters. And that's part of the article that I wrote for Standart was to show that here you have this family in Tolima, Colombia producing this particular varietal. And it's me over the course of a year following it to following this particular varietal to different, to about 10, 11 different roasters around the world. Um, you know, and to, to show that, yes, Consumers and customers do care that much, right? We are interested in those stories. We do want those stories to be told, but not in an imposing, you know, uh, demanding way, but in an, an opportunity to see that as the DJ is spinning this record, that he or she is sharing with us, right, how, when they first discovered this artist and, and, you know, how it made them feel, their excitement about it, that kind of makes you want to listen to it. That's the way that coffee has become for me. I find that answer to be so fascinating because I think that it's really like 
coffee is so roaster centric, right? Like we follow roasters. Even in the beginning, you were following roasters. You were like, I'm going to go to this place because mm-hmm. they have intelligentsia because that's how we sell coffee. We sell coffee mm-hmm. as this branded item from roasters. But then we also pad on this layer of, oh, but look at the good work we do with producers like pat us on the back, we're doing a nice job, but then going backwards on that and saying, wait, let me actually talk to the producers who made this coffee and see who are the people that they like to sell to and who's mm-hmm. actually telling their story authentically is so is so interesting and we should be better at telling that story. But like the fact that you had to like go do that yourself to figure out who to buy from is, 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 is wild to me. So as a person with a marketing and a brand strategy background, diagnose the coffee industry, just like right now, just diagnose us all. Um, (laughs) but, uh, what are some of the things that you think we could be doing better as an industry? And I know that that's a very open-ended question. So maybe we can kind of break that down a little bit into some parts. Um, but as you look at our industry, as you look at us as like storytellers trying to bring these stories of producers to light, like where are we, where are we failing? Right. I, and if I can, Ashley, just stick with the music analogy for a little bit. I think specialty in particular spends some time singing to the choir. I think the industry spends a lot of time talking to itself. I, and I'm, I'm, I don't mean to suggest that those things aren't important because they are. However, if the goal is to grow the, the, the consumer base and get more people interested in it, um, then that journey looks very different than the journey of you know, you know, what we think is important. As an example, do I really care as a consumer, right, what, what point, right, what points a coffee scores? I understand that that's an important buying criteria, but as the person standing across the counter, unless I'm of a certain level of engagement, whether it's an 84, 85, 87, 90, I mean, it's, it's interesting, maybe. If, if, I, if you buy wine and you're familiar with the wine point scoring, maybe. However, sharing a little bit about, again, I'll go back to the first time uh, at the Blue Bottle in Rockefeller Center was the first time I ever had a Kenyan coffee. And Ryan brewed it for me. And he said, before I tested it, he said, Brian, smell it. And he said, do you, what do you smell? And I tried to describe it. And he said, if I say tomato soup, do you get that? And he said it, and I smelled it again. I was like, Ryan, I never would have said that, but you're absolutely right. I can smell it. And then I tasted it, and it didn't carry through to the flavor. You don't taste tomato soup. But the idea that he introduced me to the coffee via this note, and it was a shared experience that he and I had. Um, uh, I think it's that kind of thing. It's genuinely connecting with consumers, not trying to to sell me on what you want me to know about coffee, what you think I should know about the coffee, but it's inviting me into the experience so that I can just appreciate it and enjoy it, right? It's Again, it's not that so much that consumers need to appreciate specialty coffee, but help us to enjoy it. Um, and then help us to start a dialogue with the coffee. Help us to, and then that dialogue with the coffee is then what will help to increase the dialogue that we have when we're in the cafe. So finding and inviting consumers to participate in the conversation, um, helping us to be more curious, um, is I think part part of what is missing. And then again, as I think about again that analogy of the music industry, the way that 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 works in my head is I almost think of the roasters as labels, right? Because as as the as the music label, and there was a time when 
Atlantic had a very specific sound. Motown had a specific sound, right? Arista had a specific sound. But we're now at a point where labels kind of facilitate that. But even in music, just as record labels are wrestling with what they're doing, I think coffee roasters are as well. And I think some are doing it really, really well. I think, you know, again, one of the brands that I started buying from, and, and you know, it, it's that George Howell, um, you know, put the farmer front and center where they belong. And from the packaging, uh, you get that vibe. I've been buying um, the George Howell's Mamuto, uh, his Kenyan, right, the, the Kenyan coffee that he roasts from uh, the Matagu family. Um, and it's because and that was really the first coffee I ever had where I cared to learn more about the story of the producer. Uh, from there, and then quite frankly, George Howe introduced me to another uh, Colombian producer, Mauricio Chata in Tolima, and the, the farm La Finca Negrita, and started buying his coffees. Um, and to the point where literally Ashley, you know, learned about Mauricio Chata, wanted to find more of his coffees. I had a chance to talk to George Howell at a coffee event in New York. He shared with me that, you know, that he sourced his coffees from Caravela. Um, and then ended, I ended up reaching out to Alejandro Cadena, the CEO of Caravela. And now Alejandro has become a friend and mentor for me. So we've, you know, developed a relationship where he's helped me to understand, you know, again, he's helped to feed that curiosity. He's helped me to understand as a, as a consumer, you know, what this process is, what it takes to get coffee from, from trees into our cups. And so as, as the coffee industry can do that, facilitate that relationship with the producer, be the value add, be able to be a platform for this, not the end all be all, um, I think you'll generate, you know, far greater, far more loyal and curious consumers that will be far better, you know, for the business and for the industry than we are today. It seems like for you, it was literally just the extension of knowledge that kept building these connections, which I'm trying to imagine it visually. It's almost like connecting the dots, which seems a little bit... um simplistic to to use that analogy but it literally is like george gave you uh, a nugget of knowledge and then you build that connection between the two of you and then it keeps going and it keeps extending outward and it it seems like your your coffee story is really about this building of connections in a way it absolutely is it's about you know when you're holding that cup in your hand and then you realize okay great it's a cup of coffee but if you just for a moment think about it all of the hands through whom that coffee is passed is fascinating. Um, now, again, at this point, the consumer who is interested in this is not necessarily going to be looking at coffee as a purely caffeine delivery vehicle. Right? The, the idea that this is a, a specialty beverage, that this is something that has, that has taken progressed through a lot of time, a lot of space, and a lot of hands to get to you, um, and that is the piece that's important to me. Uh, it's one, you know, A.J. Jacobs wrote about it in, in Thanks a Thousand, um, in the book where he talked about trying to thank all of the people in, in, involved in this coffee. Uh, Simran Sethi talks about it in um, uh, Bread, Wine, Chocolate, where she talks about coffee. And, and, and there's a moment of appreciation where she kind of says a quiet, you know, prayer of acknowledgement for all of the people who were involved in that. And so all of a sudden, uh, as, as, as you're sitting there with that cup of coffee, and if you, if you have the opportunity to do so kind of in that quiet moment, and you realize the depth and the richness of that coffee is not just about the flavor, but it's about the journey that 
that that that bean went to get right from from the seeds of the cherry, you know, to to my grinder. I think maybe in 2016, I watched a competitor at the United States Barista Championship talk about how many hands touched a coffee from being picked on a farm to physically being in her hands. And she said it was over a hundred. And that was the first time I had ever heard someone put a number to how many people touch hands. And she wasn't exact. She just said she thought it was about a hundred based on the very crude math that she did for this specific coffee. And I thought, man, we are bad at telling our own stories if this is the first time I'm hearing this. And I think something that you said earlier in an answer was that, you know, you have this book, Stuff White People Like, and they complain about overpriced coffee. And yet we're not paying producers enough for coffee. And we are also in the, at the same time isolating black and brown people who are generally the people behind coffee but we're isolating them at the consumer level from actually enjoying that final product. And I was wondering, as someone with a background like yours in branding and market strategy, like how did our story become so messed up, I guess? Like we kind of live in this dichotomy of like, we're this overpriced thing, but we're not paying farmers enough, but we're isolating certain people. It's become so, like we have just done such a disservice telling our story, and I wonder for you, like how do you how do you see that unfolding? You know, and I, I think Ashley, for me, part of it is informing myself to really better understand the story, and then sharing that with with people with whom I share a cup of coffee, or you know, or I have the pleasure of brewing a cup of coffee for. I think one of the challenges and the realities is that you know, it coffee is a cash crop. And because it was used by and, and farmed and harvested by exploited labor, uh, we've never properly valued it. And so it is the idea. I mean, to your point, even let's just say that, you know, it's half as many hands. So instead of 100, it's 50. Coffee passes through 50 sets of hands and we don't want to pay more than two or three dollars for it. I, I, to me, it's, it's, it's only when you begin to appreciate the fact that Oh wow, there is this value chain, right? Coffee isn't this thing that I simply buy in a metal tin off of a shelf in the supermarket or even in a bag, right? If no matter what store I'm in, if I buy it in a bag and oh, some folks just it went from wherever it was, some people put it in a bag and now it's ready for me. It, so it's difficult to value it. I had a great conversation with with uh John Allen from Onyx one day, and you know, John's point in this, I'll never forget this. Other than coffee, where can you have the absolute best of anything in the world, like the best coffee possible, and you're still probably not going to pay more than, absolutely no more than $20 for the absolute best coffee in the world? And, and so if that's the case, right, how do we get, get consumers to appreciate that? And this is going to require better storytelling. It is, it, and better storytelling is everything from it is the origin story of the coffee, right? And, and we love, right? Consumers love origin stories. We love it in, in superheroes. We love it in, you know, our favorite characters in any episode. Uh, but at the same time, it's also giving us the information of well, how do I properly prepare it? Um, you know, so it is being able to provide that information about how to properly brew it, how to properly store that coffee. Um, how can I, as a consumer, get the most out of it? In some ways, and show me how to do that if I want to go all in on gear and and do it as you know as manually and as 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 art artisanal as possible. 
But also if I just got a, a, you know, whatever coffee maker, how do I get the best cup of coffee out of that? Help me have the best experience. And so I think for the industry, a lot of time and energy is spent in cafe design. So you get kind of this visual aesthetic. I think less time is spent on experience design. Everything from how do you interact to find coffees on the website, right? When you see you go to a website, how do I know whether or not I want a natural process or, you know, or a washed coffee? How do I know what anaerobic processing is, you know, versus, you know, this other thing? So the wayfinding experience from the website to the cafe to after purchase, and I'm having to brew at home, because that's the other complexity in coffee that when people suggest that it's like craft beer or it's like wine. But the, the, the real difference in there is that, you know, you, you open the beer, you open the bottle of wine and you let it breathe. Coffee, you know, if you take it home, you still have to brew it and get that right. Otherwise, all of the value and the setup and the buildup that came before that can be lost. So, so by considering that experience in the life of your consumer so that your consumer feels like, you know, I, I, you know, I feel capable of trying it. And you know what? If I mess it up, that I, there's a place to go for help. And in a, in a recent webinar that the CCRE had on, on Afrofuturism, one of our panelists, Philip Butler, who was really, he's a, he's a, a theological scholar and an Afro, also an Afrofuturistic thinker and tech scholar. But one of the questions that he asked toward the end is, what if we looked at coffee as a technology? And so now we think about kind of Black Panther, you think about what vibranium was there. But if we started thinking about coffee as a technology instead of as a commodity, then I mean, instead of necessarily trying to pay as little for it as possible, trying to have as efficient a supply chain or a value chain as possible, it means that we would figure out how to make it foundational and how do we build upon it? How do we explore it? So looking at it as a technology completely enables us to re-envision and re-imagine how we enable and invite people to engage with coffee than this just right this this commodity product that can be made generic. Um, so really rethinking coffee itself, rethinking the rituals, rethinking the spaces where we prepare it and consume it, rethinking the vessels themselves. Um, now, I'm I'm a big fan of the the Lino mug from Not Neutral um, because of the fact that the the handle and the rim of the mug are at the same level and and right metaphorically that means for me that because you use the handle to lift it that represents the labor or the, in my mind the producing countries the rim the bowl is that represents the consuming countries most times the handle sits below the rim right. The labor is subservient to the consuming countries. There's something, and that was what triggered for me that aesthetically, because they're at the same level, there's equity in that cup of coffee in the experience of that mug that I don't experience with other mugs. And so quite literally, all of the coffee mugs in my house are Lino mugs. And when the CCRE created its first piece of merchandise, uh, we chose the Lino mug for that very reason, the visualization of equity. I've never thought about that. That is an amazing analogy. Um, I need to like sit with that for a minute. I also feel like you and I could have a whole conversation about um, the inefficiency in coffee because I could I could talk about that forever, um, which is a really interesting point. I wrote down I wrote down all the stuff that you wrote about technology because I want to touch upon that maybe a little bit later. But I also want to talk about your work with the CCRE and specifically, like you just mentioned, uh, the idea of Afrofuturism 
in the specialty coffee industry. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the uh, the webinar that you just hosted on this topic and sort of the implications Afrofuturism could have on the future of coffee. Yep. Um, so, and I'll share, you know, there, there's what helped to anchor the idea of Afrofuturism to me as a framework to help us think about the future of coffee is really a quote that comes from Florence Okoye. And the, it reads as such, Afrofuturism dares to suggest that not only will Black people exist in the future, but that we will be makers and shapers of it too. And that's important because for, particularly for, for Black and brown people in coffee, with the exception of being the labor, we don't see ourselves in, in coffee. We don't see ourselves in the physical environment of the cafe. Um, we don't see ourselves in many other parts of the value chain, particularly once coffee lands in the, on the, the consuming side. So we're a bit invisible and it's, it, it, we get lost in it. So if we begin to think about the future of coffee, then quite frankly, black and brown people have the work of understanding what role do we want to assume to create that visibility that historically has not been there except on one side of it. And so, you know, back to Okoye's point, it is this idea of being a maker and shaper of it. So one of the questions that we talked about, for example, is what would a cafe look like if it was sitting in the capital city of Wakanda? And how would that be different from a cafe if it was sitting in, in, in Williamsburg in Brooklyn? And they should look different. And it's everything from the kinds of beverages served, the, the visual aesthetic, the, the way and the function of the barista, the way the countertop exists, and what kinds of barriers would exist between the barista and, and the patron. All of those things have room to be reimagined because if we limit specialty coffee to what it is today, it stops growing and more and more people continue to be excluded from it. You know, so, you know, when we think about, you know, re-envisioning and re-imagining coffee, that, you know, some of it's happening in the consuming countries, but there are also growing trends in the producing countries. You know, Vera Espindola had, you know, wrote a wonderful paper that I just read about uh, seeing increasing consumption trends in Brazil, in Mexico, and in Colombia. Um, and we have to rethink all of these pieces. It's not simply a matter of taking specialty as it exists today and copying and pasting into other communities or other countries, but it really is reimagining the space where people of color are part of the experience. And that aesthetic is part of the experience. Um, it's not simply taking, you know, what, what the U.S. has decided it is or what Korea has decided it is or, you know, or any other, you know, any other country. But it really is figuring out in what context does coffee exist for us? How can we enjoy it? Do you bring the jebina back? Right. So we think about the, you know, the traditional vessel of serving coffee in Ethiopia that, you know, we don't see that in cafes. Why not bring those kinds of artifacts into the experience so that you do create these, these cultural linkages to coffee's origin? Afrofuturism and this idea of reimagining it is what, you know, the framework that enables you to do that. It's the, it gives you the scaffolding to say, you know, how, you know, what were the rituals? What were, how was it roasted? How was it prepared? Something as simple as, you know, when I have coffee in the afternoon or I have someone over, I'll serve coffee with popcorn, right? And I serve with popcorn because in Ethiopia, that's often the way that it's presented. But I don't think I've ever been into a third wave shop in the US where I've ever received coffee and popcorn. 
not saying that no one's doing it. I just haven't had that experience. But this is what it enables us to do, recreate and rewrite the narrative that centers us in the experience so that we're not just at the margins of it. Yeah, it seems like coffee in general suffers from this descent into a monoculture where we're all doing the same things. We're all designing our cafes the same ways. We are all buying the same coffees. We are all talking about anaerobic fermentation. Um, I was at the last United States Barista competition, I believe four out of six of the top six competitors all use the same coffee. And not to say that those individuals are at fault for picking those same coffees, but it spoke to the bigger cultural problem of what are we valuing? And as we descend further and further into a monoculture, who are we leaving out? And are we, are we building any tools to make the coffee industry better if we're all descending into sameness? And so here's the interesting thing for me that, and this is one of the things that coffee shares with any industry. Um, I I remember growing up when you could easily tell just by looking at a car, what, what, you know, what was a Toyota versus a Honda versus something else, right? And now we're at a point, you're not quite sure what cars are, even as you look at it, you know, uh, you kind of go up market with some of the luxury brands, they've all started to look the same. And, And this is one of the areas where I think, again, many industries suffer. It is this rush to the bottom. It is this, well, if, if, I can become the thing that most people like, then I'll be okay. And this is one of the areas where I think, and again, we, I think we see some roasters doing a really good job of this, but it is going to be about what is my particular point of view in coffee? What coffees am I sourcing? What relationships am I building? Who is my customer base, right? Because why are we assuming that the same customer in Brooklyn is going to be the same customer in Omaha, who's going to be the same customer in Phoenix? And then in San Francisco, um, so understanding you know understanding that enables people to then in the industry to take more calculated risks. And you know, by no means am I saying, well, listen, don't don't buy the award winning coffees that that are award winning. I'm saying that, but are you offering flights? Are you enabling people to have um, you know to be able to experience the different varietals from a particular country? What are you offering? Other than saying, hey, I've got this award-winning coffee, but it's this is the this is what I, the experience that I want to share with you, right? This is, you know, and, and quite and this coffee matches with this particular food, right? So it's bringing out these other pieces. Where let's go back to being curious about the coffees. Let's go back to being curious about, um, you know, the, again the stories of the producers and, and what the best of these coffees are and how we can present that. At the same time, I recognize it's going to ma- it's going to be disruptive to the economics, right? I recognize cafe margins are really, really slim, and there are lots of things to consider, right? Labor on all sides of the value chain are considerations, but I think if you just start a, a, a cafe looking at a template of this is about what coffee should cost me, this is about what labor should cost me, what you lose is the ability to say, but as a cafe, who am I? And that kind of self-reflection and using that to inform everything from your menu to who you're hiring to how you present, I think really gives us the opportunity that whatever the future of coffee will be, will become far more compelling and interesting than it is today. Is there anything else that you want people to know about you or your perspective on coffee? I think that 
we didn't, we didn't use this word specifically, but your insights are so interesting, both because of your background in branding and marketing, but also because you're not like, you're technically not in the coffee industry. Like you're, you're kind of outside of it, even though you are very involved and you've written about it, but a lot of your perspective and the perspective that you've shared, you've presented as the outsider. And I wonder what, what can people gain from, from listening to more people like you? And what are things that you would want people to hear loudly from outsiders and from customers? No, I appreciate the question, Ashley. And I think some of it is in, in my social media handle, which is coffee adjacent, uh, because I really do consider myself someone who sits you know, on the margin. Thankfully, because of the relationships, I've been able to learn a lot. I've been able to, to, to develop access. Um, but it is the outsider's perspective I, that I would encourage every business to do. Every business should have someone or some ones on the team who can be that outsider, who can maintain a fresh perspective to see, you know, what are we offering? You know, what should we be offering? What shouldn't be offering? Um, you know, looking at your data to figure out, hey, great, what sells really well? What doesn't? What do we want to try? Um, and again, I understand that margins are slim and it's tight, but where can we afford to fail? Where can we afford some inefficiency in, in a responsible way? Because quite frankly, some of the, the standardization and the collapse to monoculture is due to trying to improve efficiencies, right? Because if I, know, if I just buy the award-winning coffees, then I know I'm going to be able to sell those. But where can inefficiencies create opportunities to explore and to try? So someone should be that outsider. Um, and I would just say, you know, in particularly your baristas, and this is where so first, before the baristas to the shop owners, is shop owners, you've got to think about the experience that you are enabling your baristas to have with your consumers. If you really want to build loyal consumers the way that, that loyalty is built in other industries, you have to allow for points of interaction. And those points of interaction are going to be virtual and they're going to be physical. But you have to figure out how to enable that so that you can maximize that relationship between these two human beings as they come together over a beverage that was produced you know, by human hands and passed through. So you've got to figure out, as you're running the business, how to maximize that. And that has to be done intentionally. You cannot leave that interaction between the barista and the customer to chance, just like you don't leave, you don't leave your coffee menu to chance. So be intentional about it. Um, and then simply be curious and ask to the coffee industry, um, be curious about your consumers. Ask us. Don't, don't, everything isn't about telling us what you think we need to know. And I know I made this point a little bit earlier, but I think it, it, it warrants emphasizing, um, you know, the more you can learn about us, the more you can give, figure out how you can be the solution to those questions or those problems that, that we're experiencing. Um, you can create new solutions. You can create new products and new services. You can find different ways to present your coffees. Um, you know, so that you can, the, the cafe becomes the physical experience that can be that platform that can connect the producers, the importers and the exporters, right? Everyone in that value chain gets connected and there's a story that's being told and that story feels authentic without being exploitative. And the customer can then understand that that $5 cup of coffee 
that that six dollar cup of coffee, I understand why it costs that. Even if I decide that I don't have it within my budget to spend five or six dollars for that cup of coffee, but I understand why, and quite frankly, I then understand why even at five or six dollars, because of coffee's history, that even that is probably undervalued. I mean, if we priced coffee at the minimum wage in the U.S., a cup of coffee would probably be a true luxury for most of us, right? If if we had to pay everybody that living wage. So I would wrap it up, actually, I guess, by saying be intentional in all of your experiences from physical to virtual. Um, be curious with your consumers and ask them the questions and give them permission to tell you what they need. And then empower and enable your baristas to really be, you know, the best DJs they can to put that playlist together, to introduce new artists to the consumers that's going to create an enjoyable and a fun experience. We need to be serious about coffee and it is important, but for consumers to really step up the way we need to, to support the industry, we're going to have to enjoy it. And so don't lose that. Don't lose that romance. Don't lose that intimacy that we talked about at that cupping experience initially, Um, because that's the thing that's going to keep us coming back. That's going to keep us doing everything from traveling to origin, to writing the articles, to getting involved, to volunteering at the festivals. All of the things that I have done are because I've had the benefit of great baristas who have created these relationships for me that have looked beyond them. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. This has been such a fun conversation and I'm already thinking, what am I going to talk about with Brian next? I have so many more ideas. It's been a blast, Ashley. Thank you for having me again. It's not the same as you know being across the counter or hanging out in the cafe with you, but I appreciate the invitation and I absolutely look forward to sharing a cup of coffee with you at some point in the not too distant future. That was Brian Gaffney. You can follow him on social media at coffee underscore adjacent. It's a fun little way to play with his social media handle and the way that he views his relationship to coffee. And you can also read his work in Standart Magazine. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash boss barista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. 
We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.